Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Paul Joseph Fronzak was born on April 26, 1964, to parents Dora and Chester Fronzak. On the day of his birth and the next day, an unidentified nurse was seen walking around the maternity ward and at one point had peeked in on baby Paul. The day after Paul was born, that same woman dressed as a nurse entered their room at the Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago and said the doctor wanted to see the baby. Turns out, the woman was not a nurse, and the baby was never returned. The woman was actually a kidnapper and a habitual criminal. Soon after, the biggest manhunt in Chicago's history began. All they had was two photos of the newborn after birth, and he had not yet gotten a hand or footprint, and they did not know the baby's blood type, and DNA was not being tested at this time. A cab driver recalled picking them up at the hospital and dropping them off at the intersection of 35th and Halstead in Chicago. The nearby residents were all questioned, but no sign of the woman and the baby was found. The case would eventually go cold until 14 months later when the Fronzaks were contacted by the FBI. They said that a toddler found in Newark, New Jersey was abandoned in a stroller in a shopping center parking lot and he resembled their son. They determined this by comparing the shape of the baby's ear to the newborn in the photo. The FBI also took pictures and even went as far as to create a mold of his ear for comparison. Over the next year, while the FBI was continuing their investigation, the baby was placed in the care of a very experienced foster family in New Jersey. Although there was no way to be sure at the time if he was indeed their child, they believed that he likely was, and eventually the FBI simply turned him over to the Fronzaks for them to raise. Paul, unaware of the history of events at age 10, had always felt like he was someone else. Then one day, he went snooping in the basement for Christmas presents and found three boxes of newspaper clippings about the abduction. His mother was angry when he brought this up to her, so he decided not to mention it again, but they did explain that he had been abducted as a baby but was later found. Paul, who was nearly 50 years old and now living in Las Vegas, Nevada, was able to convince his parents to take DNA tests. He wanted to find out once and for all if he really was their biological son. In 2012, they agreed and he collected their DNA and sent the swabs off, but they suddenly changed their minds and begged him not to find out. But he wanted to pay them back for saving his life and being his parents by finding their biological son if it was indeed not him and desperately wanted to know who he was. 
So he submitted the DNA test anyways, which answered the question that had burdened them all those years. He was not the Paul Franzak that Dora gave birth to. His parents were furious about the situation and refused to speak to him for several years before finally reconciling. Paul became determined to find the real Paul and answers about his own identity. With the help of genetic genealogist C.C. Moore, Paul was able to trace his genetic roots to Tennessee. She discovered that his birth name was Jack Rosenthal, and he had four siblings, including a twin sister named Jill. Upon meeting his relatives, Paul learned that they had no clue what happened to Jill. Their birth mother, Marie, was a heavy drinker, and his dad, Gilbert, was badly affected by the Korean War, and they were both now deceased. They allegedly removed photos of the twins from their family photo album, and the father warned relatives not to talk about them. As a result, their disappearances weren't reported. Jack and Jill were apparently badly neglected and abused, and one relative even recalled them being in a cage at one point when they were babies. At some point, Gilbert and Marie claimed that they had given the twins to another relative to take care of. Even with all this information, Paul still has no idea what happened to his twin sister, Jill. In 2019, after Paul went public about his story and his desire to find his sister, Jill, and the real Paul Franzak, a Facebook page for tips was created, which prompted the FBI to reopen the case. Genealogist Cece Moore helped Paul track down biological relatives by submitting his DNA to three different companies. The connection started being made with a third cousin and then a second cousin and so forth. Paul would eventually discover his biological surviving siblings, but sadly, they declined to connect with him. On his journey to find his twin sister, he has gone to prior addresses and dug up the backyard looking for bones and even used ground-penetrating radar. He did this because he initially suspected she had been murdered and that's why he was abandoned, so all his parents had to say was they were taken in together by another family. An artist created a picture of what Jill may look like in case she was also abandoned and grew up not knowing her true identity, but it's now believed that her disappearance is most likely related to foul play. Paul later briefly acted in movies and was a stand-in in the movie Ocean's Eleven and later began working at a college. He decided to keep his name and went on to write a book titled The Foundling, A True Story About His Life. In 2014, an artist with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children created an aged progress photo of the baby in the picture to what he may look like around 50 years old. Meanwhile, several men came forward believing themselves to be Paul. A friend of Sam Miller saw the photo and notified him that it looked very similar to him. He was the right age and grew up in a suburb of Chicago, and when comparing his baby picture to the stolen baby, they were strikingly similar. He also had been adopted and didn't find out until he was a grown man in need of a kidney transplant from a possible family member. He provided his DNA to the FBI, but he turned out not to be Paul Franzak. In 2015, C.C. Moore finally located the real Paul Franzak in rural Michigan. He had gone by the name Kevin Beatty his entire life and had been given the birth date March 14, 1964, weeks earlier than his true birth date. 
He was raised by Robert and Lorraine Fountain in the very small town of Manton, Michigan, and had spent his life working as a mold maker and machinist. He became the father of three daughters and later a grandfather of four. His mother, Lorraine, died in 2004 and had reportedly told people that she dated a man in Chicago and returned to Michigan with an infant she had with the man. Turns out, she had likely purchased him from the woman that kidnapped him. Sadly, Kevin, the real Paul, was suffering from cancer when he found out his true identity and passed away at the age of 56 on April 25, 2020. Before his death, he spoke to his biological mother on the phone a few times, but never met face-to-face, and he also learned that his biological father, Chester, was already deceased. Ironically, the day Kevin passed away was actually his 56th birthday. However, his obituary doesn't reflect that and shows the other birth date. Before passing away, Kevin got the chance to read the foundling that Paul wrote. While it is said he did enjoy the book, he still declined to speak personally with Paul. The reason for this had a lot to do with the fact that he had terminal cancer, was dying in the middle of the COVID pandemic, and on top of all that, he just found out that he wasn't who he thought he was. As for the person who kidnapped Kevin, it's suspected to be a woman named Linda Taylor. A newspaper article was published in the 70s around the time that Linda was on trial for welfare fraud that said her ex-husband reported that she just showed up one day in the mid-60s with a newborn baby and it was strange because she had not even been pregnant. Years later, Linda's son, Johnny Harbo of Chicago, Illinois, claimed that his mother, who was notoriously known as the welfare queen in Chicago during the 70s and 80s, did in fact kidnap Paul right after he was born. Even President Reagan made a public statement about her slew of criminal actions and nearly 90 counts of fraud, aliases, and 50 false addresses. Johnny recalls that decades earlier when he was a teenager, his mother just came home one day with an infant boy. He said she was a master of disguise and had multiple money schemes and even had an entire room for her wigs and nursing dresses and doctor's clothing that she used to disguise herself. He said he's certain one of her boyfriends later took the baby to Tennessee. The man worked for the American Rivet Company, and a former employee there confirmed to the media that the man had moved to Sevierville, Tennessee. In 2021, an American-British documentary film titled The Lost Sons was released that follows the story of the kidnapping. In a new book, True Identity, Paul Franzak offers proof that the cops, FBI, and even the Franzaks were aware he probably wasn't the real Paul. Nadine Cohen Major was born on October 4, 1954, to parents Annette and Isaac Cohen. Nadine graduated Cleveland Heights High School in 1973 and then married a man named Mark Major. The couple lived in the small town of Willoughby, Ohio, in the 37,500 block of Grove Avenue and had a son named Daniel. On January 11, 1980, a year and a half into their marriage, Mark left his job and returned to their apartment to find a devastating and gruesome scene. 25-year-old Nadine was found on the floor of the dining room, fatally stabbed in a way described as severe overkill. 
Thankfully, their six-month-old son was found unharmed in a playpen nearby, but had likely witnessed his mother's horrible murder. A neighbor reported that earlier that day, an unusual canary yellow sports car was parked outside the apartment building, and interestingly, her autopsy revealed no sign of sexual assault. Unfortunately, the case would go cold for the next 42 years. In 1996, the bloodied shirt Nadine was wearing was tested, and amidst her own blood, the crime lab discovered blood of an unknown male. Then in 2014, the lab analyzed the bloodstain pattern on the shirt, and it was determined that the injured killer had likely stood over Nadine, dripping his blood onto her. But the case remained cold until finally they got a break thanks to advancements in DNA. In 2018, Parabon created a DNA profile using the suspect's blood. They created a snapshot that revealed the suspect's physical characteristics. He was a Caucasian man with blue eyes and blonde hair and of Eastern European descent. This information eliminated a lot of suspects off the investigators list. Then a genetic genealogist began the tedious task of locating a possible suspect by creating and researching a family tree beginning all the way back to the 1800s. She came to the name of a likely suspect, Stephen Joseph Simcak, and provided his name to detectives. Simcak died in 2018, so his DNA could not be compared directly. So investigators discovered a grandson who had died before him, and the coroner's office still had that DNA, which they were able to test and ultimately conclude that Simcak was indeed the killer. Also, the lead investigator with the Willoughby Police Department reached out to Simcak's children, who agreed to provide their DNA on April 28, 2022, Again, this led to a match. Initially, no one knew who this man was and why he would want to murder Nadine, and police asked for anyone that might have information to come forward. Investigators were able to learn that Simcak owned a bright yellow Dodge Dart in 1980, which matched the car the neighbor saw. He also worked at Lincoln Electric, where old records showed that in the entire year, he had missed only one day. January 11th, the day of the murder. In fact, it was later determined that in his 36 years of employment at Lincoln Electric, he only called in sick that one day. From what I've learned, no one can understand why a married man would take the day off from work to murder a woman he may not have known and leave no obvious signs of sexual assault as the motive. Police said that he had been married to the same woman since 1963 and had no criminal record. He was in the Marines in the late 1950s, lived on Sunset Drive in Eastlake from 1963 to 2002, the same city as the Madger family. He then retired and lived in Bemis Point, New York from 2002 until his death. Daniel, now a grown man, who was only six months old when he witnessed the murder of his mother, was angry that Simcak would not face justice and died a free man, and he took away ever being able to have a bond or hug his mother. On July 13, 2022, he and his father attended the press conference addressing Simcak's family. 
stating that he has no animosity towards them, but he surely does for Simcac, and told of the gruesome image that has stuck in his head all these years, of his wife lying murdered on the floor, and said he hopes Simcac is rotting in hell for what he has done. Shaney Warren was born in 1961 in Stoke Poges, England, to parents Joe and Elsie, and had a brother named Stephen. Shaney was described as intelligent and level-headed and loved to sing and dance. She also came from a loving and wealthy family, and at the age of 26, she was living in Stoke Poges, Buckinghamshire. On the morning of Good Friday in 1987, Shaney decided to mow her lawn and stopped by her uncle's house first, chatted, and borrowed an extension lead for her lawnmower. She finished up her yard work at 5 p.m. and had plans to meet up with a friend. She was excited to meet up with her friend and had brought along an Easter egg and a bottle of champagne as it was Easter weekend, but sadly she would never make it. The next morning, Marjorie Arnold, along with her German Shepherd, took a stroll around Teplow Lake, Buckinghamshire. Her dog led her over to a deceased woman's body in a foot and a half of water near the shore. Panicked, the woman ran to flag down a passing vehicle. Marjorie and the other person dragged the woman up the shore, hoping to perform CPR, but quickly realized she was way past being saved. She was gagged with a blue scarf, and her hands were tied behind her back with jumper cables, and a rope was used to bind her feet. When police arrived to the scene, they searched a nearby car that contained bags of grass clippings, and the driver's seat was found fully reclined. The car was a new black Cavalier and strangely would not go into gear. The body was soon determined to be that of Shaney, and she was taken for an autopsy by pathologist Ben Davies, who had just been reinstated to the home office list of approved pathologists after being removed. Outrageously, despite being discovered gagged and bound with ligature marks around her neck and bruises on her body, he ruled her death a suicide because there was no sign of a struggle and no footprints were found with her stiletto shoe prints. He said he could provide three other samples of people who had gagged themselves before drowning themselves. It would be several more days before her death was treated as suspicious, which means the critical first 48 hours into her murder investigation had been lost. Even detective superintendent at the time, Tony Miller, suggested that she may have bound and gagged herself. The press would dub Shani the Lady of the Lake. Her family refuted this crazy theory, along with others, which pressured law enforcement to call in a not-expert. He reported that Shani could not have bound and gagged herself. Finally, law enforcement began investigating her death as a homicide and brought in their own expert, a forensic psychiatrist from Broadmoor Mental Hospital, Dr. John Hamilton. He reviewed over eight years of Shaney's diary and also went to the site her body was found. He stated there were no signs of depression or mental health disorders in any of her diary entries. With so much conflicting evidence, the coroner was left with no option but to record an open verdict. A reconstruction of her last movements was publicized on the BBC Crime Watch program, resulting in several tips. 
Several witnesses called to say that Friday evening, they had seen a blonde woman standing near the road while three men were looking at the engine of her car. Another witness had seen a blonde woman with a black bag possibly dumping grass clippings. At the same time, a well-dressed, unidentified man was standing next to a green BMW. Five years after Shaney's death, a conspiracy theory had developed. A British journalist named Collins on Computer Weekly published a book titled Open Verdict, which linked Shaney's death to the technology giant GEC Marconi. Collins had uncovered a series of up to 25 bizarre deaths of people connected to GEC Marconi, who, at the time, was undertaking research for America's Strategic Defense Initiative, or the Star Wars Project. The project was designed to develop a system that could intercept Russian nuclear missiles from space. Collins began to record the mysterious disappearances and bizarre suicides of those connected to the company in the early 80s. At first, there were one or two deaths a year until 1988 when there was suddenly a cluster of them. Those who died showed no indication of mental illness before and had often spent the day performing mundane tasks before killing themselves in bizarre and dramatic ways. Their deaths were often recorded as an open verdict, same as Shaney. Interestingly, Shaney had begun working for a company called Microscope, which was purchased a week prior to her death by none other than GEC Marconi. Some of those identified by Collins had been on the verge of leaving their jobs. Others claimed to have uncovered a secret. At least three made appointments with their member of parliament to discuss a serious matter, but died before the meeting. The same day that Shaney died, another person connected to GEC Marconi jumped off a viaduct a mile away. Although he survived, he had no recollection of jumping or the events leading up to it. Then in 1997, 10 years after her death, a task force created by Listashire Police, known as Operation Lynx, contacted Thames Valley Police. Lynx was set up when breakthroughs in DNA technology linked a series of rapes in Leicestershire, Nottinghamshire, and Yorkshire. The rapist, M.O., was to abduct young women in parking lots, bind them with jumper cables or rope from their cars, then rape and rob them. In one instance, the suspect used a tube of superglue that he had found in the victim's car to glue her eyes shut. In another, he raped a young woman, placed a bag on her head, and tossed her into a freezing canal. Miraculously, she survived by standing on her tiptoes and crying for help. Moments away from drowning, she felt a stone on the floor of the canal that she used to push herself out of the water. I also read a report that stated that she was rescued by a citizen who heard her cries for help. Either way, her rapist watched calmly from the bank before walking away, and he was later identified as Clive Barwell, a lorry driver, or what we call a truck driver in the U.S. Barwell murdered at least 13 women and became known as the Yorkshire Ripper. Over the years, police had gathered forensic evidence from the women and their cars, such as swabs and body hairs. Strangely, they later destroyed all the evidence and he carried on with his attacks of young women, getting more and more bold and gruesome. 
A detective was able to place Barwell in Buckinghamshire around the time of Shaney's death, and he was charged with her murder but denied any knowledge of Shaney's death. In 1999, he pleaded guilty to attempted murder, kidnapping, rape, and assault, and was sentenced to eight life sentences. As you will see soon, he wasn't actually her killer, but he was a sadistic serial rapist who had attacked at least 25 women and had committed a reign of terror that lasted 13 years, all while his wife and children thought of him as a model citizen. In 2021, 33 years later, traces of semen were found on evidence collected from Shaney's body. The new DNA evidence led them to 66-year-old Donald Robertson, leading to his conviction for false imprisonment, indecent assault, and murder of Shaney. He was jailed in 1978 for burglary and attempted rape of a 15-year-old girl who was home alone. He was released three years later and soon after kidnapped and raped again. Days after being released, he attacked a 14-year-old girl who had been riding her bicycle in Farnham Royal. He shook a broken bottle at her and threatened to harm her again if she went to police. He later pleaded guilty to that crime in October 1981 and spent a little over five years in jail. Four months after that release is when he attacked and murdered Shaney. Less than two months after attacking and killing Shaney, he attacked a 17-year-old girl who was walking home along the A4 Bath Road after missing the last train on the outskirts of Slough, Robertson's hometown. Robertson was convicted of another attack in 2010 and was already behind bars when convicted for Shaney's murder in May of 2022, over 34 years later. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.